There we go. Well, we want to welcome all of you. We're so glad that you're with us on this very special morning. And you know, brothers and sisters, Christmas isn't the easiest time to preach the Word of God, only because Christmas over the years has become such a a holiday where it seems the world appreciates it more than some true believers because of what has happened and as the gospel's becoming more diluted year after year as the word of god is becoming less accepted in society and sadly to say in some of our churches the reality of christmas also many people don't even know why they have a christmas celebration you know there was a survey in england not too long ago and they surveyed why do people celebrate christmas and easter and 35% of them didn't know. This is in England where they experienced many great revivals and moves of the Spirit. It's hard to imagine. But today I am going to bring you something that I believe is so inspiring and encouraging. And you will find it 100% in the Word of God. And so if you brought your Bibles, I know it's Christmas Day But if you brought your Bibles, we are in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. I have one text, but we're going to be navigating throughout the whole Bible this morning. But we find ourselves first of all in Micah chapter 5. I want to welcome all of you on YouTube and Facebook. Merry, Merry Christmas to all of you. Micah chapter 5 verse number 2. But thou Bethlehem, Ipritah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. Now watch this. Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is to be the ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old. Here we have a prophetic prophecy. A word that was given several hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. A prophecy of where the Messiah will be born. And the Bible is filled with prophecy. From Genesis to Revelation. And through Genesis to Revelation, we see Jesus being the focal point. We see all kinds of prophecies referring to a time where the Messiah will be born. And where the Messiah will come and bring peace upon the earth. And I'm going to share some of these scriptures. Some of these incredible scriptures. And brothers and sisters, we're going to learn tonight and see how amazing the Bible is. How accurate the Bible is. The Bible is the only religious book, spiritual book, that actually speaks on prophecy. No other book speaks on prophecy. No other book dares to speak on prophecy. Because prophecy is future. And prophecy, you better know what you're saying when you're giving a prophetic word. The Bible is the only book that speaks on prophecy. Because the Bible is the only book that truly comes from God. Because only God knows the future. And we're going to see some incredible prophetic words in the word of God. That will amaze you. As it's amazed me over the years. And so as we begin this morning, every year it seems, every Christmas season, we turn to this little town called Bethlehem, where the infant child of the Son of God, who took form of a servant, Born of a virgin who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself 
and took the form of a servant, a child was born. And this, my friend, is the very essence of Christmas. A child was born. And it was God who arranged and prepared this incredible event with inconceivable, unbelievable detail, so precise, so exact, it's, all, it's absolutely mind-boggling as we travel through the Bible. You will see how accurate these prophecies are and how Jesus fulfilled them to the very letter. Amazing. And we begin to see the preciseness of the Word of God right here in Bethlehem, the first text that we read. In Israel, brothers and sisters, did you know that there's two Bethlehems? I've shared this before, but I want to bring it again. There's two Bethlehems in all of Israel. There's one to the north, the northern part of Israel in Zebulun. And there's another one in Judah, the southern part, where we see our text in Micah 5.2. We see exactly where this ruler, where this Messiah would be born. He could have mentioned the north, but doesn't. It mentions the south. And it's, it's not by chance that it mentions the south. It's not by chance that it mentioned this particular Bethlehem. Because God inspired the writer to say that. Let me tell you friends, nothing is by accident. Nothing is by chance. There's no place for chance in the word of God. There's no accidents in the word of God. God had ordained it and orchestrated. And we're going to be looking at how God prepared certain events. How God prepared certain events and how God prepared this little town called Bethlehem. This small community out of all the communities, out of all the thousands, we just read it. All the thousands of places where the Messiah could have been born. Of all the places in the world where the Messiah could have been born. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God himself. God chooses this obscure, remote enclave called Bethlehem, Bethlehem, and we're going to look at how God prepared all of these events in three different categories this morning, we're going to look at how God prepared it historically, how God prepared it symbolically, and how God prepared it prophetically, and so we're going to look at these three areas, and the first one I want to look at is how God prepared this city Historically, and we'll look at some subpoints that begin with S. The first thing I want you to notice about Bethlehem, Bethlehem was considered to be a city of sorrow. A city of sorrow. Bethlehem. We're going to look at the uniqueness of Bethlehem this morning. A city of sorrow. When you look in the book of Genesis and you look in the Old Testament, we see many times where that area had a lot of sorrow and pain attributed to it. Y'all remember Jacob and Rachel. Jacob loved his wife Rachel and the Bible tells us in Genesis that Rachel was pregnant and was about to give child Jacob was the father of Joseph and Jacob who loved Rachel so much understood that she was going through a very difficult time and possibly she was going to die giving birth to her child and Jacob was desperate but she eventually died. It broke his heart. The Bible tells us he loved Rachel so much and it broke. He was devastated. And where did he bury Rachel, his beloved? In Bethlehem. In 
Bethlehem. But the sorrow of Bethlehem goes far beyond the pain of Jacob. We now enter into the New Testament. We come to a character by the name of Herod. Herod was considered to be the king of the Jews. But he wasn't even Jewish. He was half an Edomite. Half Jewish. And the Roman government appointed him to be king or preside over all of Judea. And he was known as their king. And one day Herod, who was a very jealous man and a very insecure man, found out that the true king was born. Found out that the prophecies had been fulfilled and that the Messiah was born. And, and Herod would have no part of this. Absolutely not. And he proclaimed and ordered that every child under two years old would die by the sword. Just like the Hebrew children in Pharaoh's day. Y'all remember the story how Pharaoh proclaimed, again, declared that all males under two years old would die. We see the same thing with Jesus. What happened with Moses is now happening with Jesus. And we see a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow as a result of this. We come to the first prophecy. Did you know the Bible prophesied that this event would take place? We find this in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 where the Bible tells us a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weepings, Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel is, is a picture of Israel and we see a prophecy that Rachel will be weeping and lamenting over children. And what does this mean? We see that these children were going to be martyred and killed because of a madman's insecurity. And the Bible speaks of this. Uh, but you see, my friends, despite this horrific situation, there was one child that got away. Yes, many died, and there was a lot of pain and a lot of agony. But in Matthew chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, something powerful takes place. One gets away, Joseph the father, the natural, not natural father, he's not a father of Jesus, Jesus had no natural father, but Joseph has a dream, and in this dream, God tells Joseph at the right time, notice the specificness, the exactness, he has a dream as Herod's about to murder all these children, and he has a dream to go to Egypt of all places, to go to Egypt, and there you're going to stay a while till I tell you to go back. And so the Bible tells us that Joseph and Mary and Jesus end up going to Egypt, and we see this prophecy in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, chapter 11 verse 1 we see this prophecy where, where he goes to Egypt to reside there for a period of time and then the Bible tells us later on in Matthew that when Herod died Joseph gets another dream notice the timing to go out of Egypt and go back to Israel back to Bethlehem go back to where you're from go back home and that's exactly what took place. And we see all these things being ordained and prepared by the Lord. Where the Messiah would be born. How this terrible ordeal took place with the children. How God gives a dream to Joseph to leave and then to come back. Oh my friends, the preciseness continues. The amazing inspiration of the Bible continues. But where did all of this take place? All of this pain and all of this agony took place in... Bethlehem, a city of sorrows. 
But Bethlehem is also not only a city of sorrows, but God, here's my next S, divinely selected and chose Bethlehem for a reason. We have to understand what Bethlehem means. What is it about Bethlehem that sets all these other places, uh, that sets it apart from everywhere else, apart from the thousands? What is it about Bethlehem? Bethlehem was divinely chosen by God. And friends, we need to look into the scriptures. And when you look into the scriptures, and that's why I keep preaching and letting every, we must know the Bible. We must know the word of God. That's why so many people are being deceived today. They don't know the word of God. And so what is it about Bethlehem? Well, let, let's, let's go back. Let's go back and look at the man by the name of David. King David. Oh, what happened to him? We all know the story in 1 Samuel 16. Israel appointed Saul to be their first king. God had nothing to do with it. Even Saul means chosen by the people. Saul was the first king of Israel. Israel wanted to be like other nations. They wanted a king, but this king didn't turn out to be very good. Of course not. When man chooses things over God, it's not going to work out, is it? And God spoke to a prophet by the name of Samuel. said, Samuel, I want you to go and anoint the real king, the one that I'm going to choose. He said, okay, Lord, no problem. And the Lord sends him to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse. To the house of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. To anoint the true king. And we all know the story. He comes to see. Talk to Jesse. I'm here with the Lord to anoint the next king. God has brought me here. But, but, but the prophet didn't know who, who the king was. Didn't know who the, the son was. And he went through all the sons. He went to, Jesse's up for sure it was his firstborn. Maybe his secondborn. Maybe his thirdborn. And Samuel, no, that's not him. No, 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 it's not him. But his father couldn't believe it because these, these were his strongest sons. You must be mistaken. And then Samuel says, no, 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 I'm not mistaken. Do you have another son? Do you have another son? And Jesse was so reluctant, didn't care much for David, had him work in the fields. Oh, I do have another son, but you, 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 you don't want to see him. He's a shepherd boy. He's cleaning manure from the field. Oh, yes, I want to see him. Bring him here. Aren't you glad God's ways are not our ways? Aren't you glad his thoughts are not our thoughts? And when he saw David, the Spirit of God spoke, this is my king. You see, my friends, the world might look at you like a shepherd boy, but God looks at you as a king. Aren't you glad? And David comes, and he anoints him. And where did all of this take place? In Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And you see, through David's lineage, the true king of kings would come forth. David, David, in Bethlehem, the city of David. That's why it's called the city of David. Bethlehem, Bethlehem, all of this was prophesied years ago. Even in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, the Bible tells us that the Messiah will come through the lineage of David through the root of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David and David and through his lineage, Jesus came forth as the Messiah. The Bible gives the specific place. He gives the very home. He gives the name of the person. How accurate do you want? Hundreds of years before the prophecy was fulfilled do you realize how incredibly and astronomically and unconscionably that that does not make sense in the natural realm to have over 300 prophecies to all be fulfilled through one man 
absolute, it's impossible. Some scholars try to bring the chance through numbers. What is the percentage? Do you know what they discovered? There's not enough numbers. There's not enough zeros to tell you how remotely possible it is for someone to fulfill all these prophecies. How do you have control of your birth when you're not born? (laughs) When you're not born, how do you say, I'm going to be born here? When you're not born, how do you say, I'm going to ride upon a donkey and I'm going to be sold for 30 pieces of silver? How do you do that? How do you orchestrate where you're going to be born, who your parents are, what their names are? Jesus didn't come into this world and, and say, oh, by the way, my father's name is, uh, my, my root is, is Jesse and, my, and the lineage. He, he, he never, he didn't know anything. This, this, it just doesn't work that way. It's beyond humanity. Nobody can control their destiny and their future before they're born. It, it just doesn't even make sense. Yet Jesus fulfills every single one of them before he was born. Isaiah 9.6 tells us what kind of ministry he will have. Isaiah 7.14 tells us that he will be born of a virgin. Genesis 3 and Genesis 49 tells us that he will bruise the, the, Satan's head as he did on the cross. And that he will be the lion of Judah. We see this fulfilled You see, friends, again, as I said earlier, there's no coincidences with God. There's no accidents with God. God either ordains it or he doesn't. God prepares it or he doesn't. That's just how it is. That's why the Bible says all things work together for good. All things, even things that don't make... If you're a child of God, if you're a child of God, I repeat, all things work together for good. Oh, you may not look like it, may not feel like it. It might look disastrous. It might look cloudy. It might look dark. It might look like there's no hope. But the Bible tells us if you're a child of God, God's working out all those clouds. He's working all that pain out, all those difficult situations, all that discord, all that barbarity all that he's working it all out for a reason if you're a child of God why because there's no coincidences there's no accidents and wait till you hear the next story listen if there's a problem I'll give you another P there's a plan behind that problem and God's in charge did you know this is just for free don't charge anything Do you know in the ancient Hebrew language, there's no word for coincidence? I want to repeat that again. I want to make sure you get it. Do you know in the ancient Hebrew language, there is no word for coincidence? Can can you figure out why? I'll tell you why. Because the Hebrew people, back in that day, they knew... They knew without a shadow of a doubt that it's either God or it's not God. There's no luck when it comes to God. Luck doesn't exist. Luck is of the devil and of the natural mind. There's no word for coincidence. The steps of a righteous man, watch this now, are ordered by the Lord. The good steps and the bad steps hallelujah 
And so in Bethlehem, we see that God prepared this city, a city of sorrow, a city that was divinely selected by God. It's divinely selected. Then God prepared this city for salvation. My third S, salvation. What is it about Bethlehem? Bethlehem, salvation, the birthplace of Jesus. Well, again, we have to go back. That's why we need to know our Bible. We need to know what the Bible says. And so what does the Bible say about Bethlehem and salvation? Well, I want to take you on a little trip back to the time of Ruth and Boaz. We all know Ruth and Boaz. Ruth had a mother-in-law by the name of Naomi. Oh, wait till you hear this story. And wait till you see how God providentially works everything out. No luck, no chance. Look at the hand of God. Look at the hand of God. Here is a woman by the name of Naomi. Her husband, Elkanah, he dies. She has two sons. There's a famine in the land. They're struggling in Bethlehem. This was in Bethlehem. They're struggling. There's no food. The father dies. When the father died back in those days, you couldn't survive if you're a woman. A woman needed a man to survive. It was part of the culture. And there was a famine. End up in Moab. And as the father dies in Moab, now we're really in trouble. What is his children going to do? They went to Moab to find blessings because there's a famine in Bethlehem. They end up going to Moab. Things looked pretty good in the beginning. And, and what happened was, is that one of her sons ends up marrying a woman by the name of Ruth. Now we have a problem because Ruth was not a Hebrew. She was not a Jew. She was a Moabitess. And it was against the law for the Jews to marry the Moabites. But somehow they went against protocol. Don't fully grasp it. But that's just the way it was. And I'm going to tell you why a little bit later on how that works. And so, and so she ends up marrying this, this man. Everything is great. So does her other son. But then things begin to get ugly in Moab. All of a sudden we find there's another famine. Not only in Bethlehem. But now there's a famine in Moab. And things are getting really ugly for Naomi. She left Bethlehem because there's a famine. To find some kind of food and some kind of fruit in, in, in Moab. But now all of a sudden in Moab there's a famine. So she's come with two different famines. But this time her children are married. And now they have to make the decision, what are we going to do? And so Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem. I'm going back home. Things aren't working out here. I'm going back home. I'm going back home. But she has two daughters and laws. And so what are we going to do with this? Are they going to come back with her? One decides to stay in Moab. And the other one, by the name of Ruth, who now lost her husband, her son dies, she's all by herself. Naomi's seeing all kinds of death, her husband dies, her son dies, now there's more famine in the land, what is she going to do? She decides to go back to Bethlehem, and who goes with her? Ruth, the Moabitess. But there's a problem with that, because she's not a Jew. And if she brings back this Moabitess, this woman Ruth, she might have problems with her family, she might have problems with her community. Racism always existed, my friends. This is not new. The Jews were despised by the Moabites, and the Moabites despised the Jews. So 
we got another problem going on here. But somehow, Ruth decides to follow her mother-in-law because she saw something in her mother-in-law. She saw the love of God. She saw something in her life. Ends up going back to Bethlehem, but they're in trouble. They got no food. They got no money. The, the husband's dead. The, the, her sons are dead. What, what is she supposed to do? And all of a sudden, they get this idea, well, maybe I can go and pick up, you know, the crumbs from the wheat fields. I'm just going to go gather up whatever I can gather up. I'm just going to find some wheat field. And now she ends up going out to the wheat fields, and she just so happened, she just so happened, to be gleaning wheat from this particular field that was owned by Boaz. And it just so happened that Boaz just so happened to be passing by when he sees Ruth picking up the crumbs from the field. And he looks at her. He says, my goodness, who are you? Just like it happened to me when I saw my wife when I was in church. I said, who, who are you? long story short Boaz ended up marrying Ruth and became what is called a kinsman redeemer a man would be able to redeem a woman and her family if she lost her husband I don't have time to explain that friends when you see and hear this story when you see the providence of God Will you see the hand of God in every detail of this story and in every detail in the birth of Christ? Because we serve an omnipotent God, an omnipresent God, an immutable God, a mighty God. El Elyon is his name. He is mighty. El Shaddai is my God. He is more than enough for you and for me. Yes, my friends. But you see, here it is. As Boaz redeemed Ruth and now they're able to survive, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And where did this all take place? In Bethlehem. Are y'all with me? In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. We see these incredible events. Now, now friends, I, I don't normally weep when I'm reading the scriptures, especially when well, I weep, but not when I'm reading the genealogies. Do you? I mean, you don't get really motivated when you read the genealogies. I mean, I, I, you know, the, he begat he and she begat uh, Edward and Edward begat, uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't work this way. But when you read Matthew chapter 1, uh, you can't help but weep when you see the preciseness. You only say that word a lot today. The preciseness and the accuracy of the Bible. Look what it says. See, Jesus was prophesied that he'd come from the root of Jesse, from the lineage of David, all the way from Genesis. And when you read Matthew chapter 1, my brothers and my sisters, I want you to notice, we'll begin at verse number 1, the book, the generation, Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, okay, and Judas begat Perez, and Tamar, Perez, watch this, verse number 5, and Solomon begat Boaz, oh, and Micah, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, that's the father of, of David, and Jesse begat David, the king, and David the king begat Solomon, and there that had been the wife of Oras. Now watch now, verse 16, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. The genealogies. 
You see, it was prophesied that Jesus would come from the lineage of David and that Boaz and Ruth were part of that lineage. And so you see how God arranged Ruth to meet Boaz? Because nothing just happens. No accidents. Divine providence. Divine guidance. For the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. He's ordering our steps. And so we see, my friends, these amazing sequences coming together. Now, I just want to say something. There's a life lesson I see here that I want to share with you. You know, nothing that you... Can I make it personal? Nothing that you or I, nothing that you go through, watch this now, is a waste. I have heard people, oh, that was just a waste. I, I had such a terrible... That was a waste of time. I, I, that was just horrible. That was a terrible experience. Such a waste. Such a waste. Such a waste. Friends, I'm going to say, can I stop you right there? Because if you're under the arm and the hand of God... Nothing is a waste. Stay with me. Nothing. And I'll tell you why nothing is a waste. Because God is doing something and many times he will use what you call waste or what you call pain for his glory. Sometimes he'll use what you call waste, what you call difficulty as ways to prepare you into your destiny. And so, friends, if that is true and God's in control, we need to stop moaning, stop complaining, stop murmuring. Why? How come? Let's say, God took you through it to prepare you for what He's about to do in your life. God didn't just take you there so you can stay there and say, What a waste of time. What does the Bible say? When, 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 not if, when, when thou goest through the fire. Fire is a picture of pain, of hurt, of, of, some form of agony when thou goest through the fire thou shalt not be burned you gotta go but notice when thou go through it doesn't say when you go around the fire see while you go through that fire that you're calling a waste of time while you go through that fire that you're saying I don't know why while you go through that fire when you're scratching your head you're saying well how come where's God in all of this God's allowed it for a reason my friends do you acknowledge what you see more than what faith tells you do you make more acknowledgments on your aches and clouds and pains? Do you make more acknowledgments on your circumstances? Or are you like David? We mentioned David. Can I mention him again? What happened when David faced Goliath? Why did all of Israel say, I want no part of, of, of Goliath? You know why they wanted no part of Goliath? Because Goliath was big, he was ugly, he was strong, and he can destroy you like that. And Israel wanted no part of this monster. But here comes little David, 16 years old, 130 pounds soaking wet. He's coming, he faces this monster that Israel was scared of, and he looks Goliath right in the face. I know you're big, and I know you're ugly, and I know you're strong, but I serve a bigger God, and he's able to do all things that's the difference what do you see when you face your Goliath do you see a problem 
Because if you can't change your problem, you got to change your perspective. You got to write that down, somebody. Because it's true. Too many of us are focusing in on Goliath and how big Goliath is rather than how big God is. But I serve a big God. And so this little town of Bethlehem was prepared historically, but also symbolically. Oh, I'm getting excited. Bethlehem, symbolically. What does Bethlehem mean? I know you'll love this, Gloria. It's in Hebrew, the house of bread. Bethlehem means Logos. This church is called Logos. This church could be called Bethlehem. Really? Could. You could put Logos and in brackets, Bethlehem. You could do that because you'd be accurate. That's what it means. The house of bread. And it is in the house of bread where the true bread was born. Jesus was born where? Bethlehem, the house of bread. What did Jesus call himself? I am the bread of life. Come with me to John chapter 6. We're just going to read a few verses. I told you, we'll begin at verse number 30 to 35. Watch this. They said therefore unto him, what sign shows us, do you want, can you show us that we may believe and see what you do, what your work is all about? They were questioning Jesus. And then they said to the Pharisees, our fathers did eat manna. Watch this now, manna, that's bread, in the desert. And it is written, it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now they're speaking to Jesus. They're having this discussion with Jesus. They're trying to disprove and discredit Jesus. Look what God does. Then Jesus said to him, verily, verily, saying to you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven. You think Moses magically did something and brought you bread? It was God. It was my father. My. Notice, my, notice the personal pronoun, my. My. Mu in Greek, M-O-U, which means personal. It speaks of intimacy. What do you say? He's my father. I know him. I'm one with him. My father gave you the true bread. Who is the true bread from heaven? Keep going. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what Jesus is saying. Keep going, verse 35. And finally, watch this. And Jesus said unto them, I am, egoime, the Greek, egoime. There are seven egoimes in the Greek. I am, I am the bread. It's the same I am, the exact same I am that Moses said to Pharaoh when Pharaoh was hurting and confused. He said, but God, I want to deliver the people you're sending me, but they're not going to believe me. Whom shall I say is sending me? Moses, you tell them simply, I am is sending you. I am. And when you say I am, that includes everything. I am whatever you need. I am your bread. I am your light. I am your song. I am your joy. I am your provider. I am sends you. I am the bread. And if you, he that cometh to me shall, watch this now. Now, See, it's impossible if this is natural. Because if you eat bread, you're going to hunger. You know, some of you say, I'm going to eat a lot tonight. You know, I'm going to, and and, uh, it's going to keep me for the next day. Yeah, you wake up the next morning, you're three times as hungry. Isn't that funny? But it's the opposite spiritually. When you come to know the truth, the truth sets you free. You don't hunger anymore. When you eat of God's bread, 
You don't hunger anymore because you've tasted the ultimate. You want to know more, yes, but that hunger is gone. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So Bethlehem symbolically represents Jesus who calls himself the bread. And by the way, friends, what was in the Ark of, this is just for free, I'm going to throw in a few free things. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? There were three things. Is any scholar among me? The shoe bread. And what is the shoe bread? Mana. And what is that a picture of? Jesus. We have the Ten Commandments. And we have the almond buds that branch without meaning. That speaks of the supernatural. We have the law. And we have the manna. We have the Trinity in the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, I can preach on this one, but I don't have time. So we're talking about symbolically. Do we see another symbol? Absolutely. Absolutely. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2. The Bible says. Of Ephrat, Which means to be fruitful. Bring me back to the text. But thou Bethlehem Ephrat, That means fruitful. Fruitful. Though thou be among the thousands. Fruitful. So notice now. This means fruitful. What did Jesus say about fruit? He said in John chapter 15 verse 1. Watch this now. So not only is Jesus the bread of life. Look what Jesus calls himself now. I am. There's the Amen. Agoime. Any Greeks in the house by the way? No Greeks? That's okay. God will forgive us. (laughs) I am the true vine. The vine. And my father's a husband. Why don't we continue verse 2. Watch this. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges, that it may bring forth more fruit. That's why trials. Trials come in your life. God is purging you. God is, is working in you so you can produce more fruit. Watch this now. Now ye are clean through the word. You what? You're clean through what? The word. You're clean through what? So why don't we spend more time in the word? Clean Bibles. Dirty hearts. Dirty Bibles, clean hearts. And we get our Bibles dirty by reading it. Don't be ashamed or upset. Mark it up. If you see my Bible, you won't even recognize it. Mark it up. Read it. Get the word in your heart. Digest it. Consume it. That's how you become clean. Which I have spoken. Verse 4 Abide in me, abide, stay in me. Be connected in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself except it abides in the vine. You see, you can't have any fruit unless you're connected to the vine. Who is the vine? The vine is Jesus. And so no more can ye except ye abide in me. What Jesus is saying, if you're not connected to the vine, there's no way you can bear any fruit. And that's true spiritually. It's also true naturally. If I cut off the root or the branch from the, from the root, it's not going to grow. It's going to die. Jesus said, For you to be a fruit bearer, you must abide. You must stay connected. You just can't go on a hiatus and on a sabbatical from God. You can't go on. You can't do that. You can't go to church on Sunday and the rest of the week do your own thing. That's not abiding. You can't can't read once a month and then do your own thing twice a month. Either you're abiding or you're not abiding. Either you're connected or you're not connected. You can't expect God to bless you if you're living a compromised lifestyle. I know what some preachers are saying, but it's not true. 
The Bible says, if you obey me and follow me, I will manifest myself in you. If you abide in me, then you'll be able to produce fruit. You can't be the bride of Jesus and the mistress of Satan at the same time. (laughs) But that's what we're trying to do in the North American church. That's what we're trying to do in the year 2023. We want to have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the world at the same time. Does not work like that. You'll never produce fruit. Can't produce fruit. So Bethlehem, Micah, symbolically represented here by bread and by the vine. But we must abide in him. In him we live and move and what? In him we live and move and what? In him we live and move and have our being. Do you realize how powerful that is? In him, I can't even breathe without him. I can't get out of bed without him. I can't function without him. You know why? Because he's my ability in my inability. He's my sufficiency in my insufficiency. He's my adequacy in my inadequacy. Why? Because in him I live and move and have my being. Why? Because without him I can do nothing. Why? Because if I'm not abiding in him, I can't produce fruit. And so, God prepared this city historically. He prepared this city symbolically. Oh, but this is a beauty. And lastly, finally, he prepared this city prophetically. Oh, my friends, there's something about Bible prophecy that sets the Bible aside from any book. There's something about Bible prophecy that, 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 that stands by itself. There's no mountain taller than the Bible. It stands alone. Because it's inspired by God. So many scriptures, so many events, all fulfilled. You see, the Old Testament is filled with prophetic words and things that will take place upon the earth, especially when it comes to Jesus. I mentioned a few earlier, Deuteronomy and tells us, Numbers 9 and Psalms 34 tells us that when Jesus dies on the cross, his bones won't even be broken. They would always break the bones. The Bible tells us that Jesus would be sold for 930 pieces of silver, Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah 9 tells us that Jesus will be riding in and they'd be crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna on a donkey. That's exactly what happened. The Bible tells us that his vesture and his garments would be gambled off and cast like lots and we see that taking place exactly in the book of Psalms Psalms also tells us that they were going to offer him bitter wine vinegar to drink that's exactly what happened can you control somebody giving you something to drink on a cross my friend what we have here is God himself coming to this world do you understand how powerful that is do you understand how absolutely incredible that is even his death in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had, was it, had done no wrong neither any deceit look he made his grave Where did Jesus die? On the cross with what? 
two thieves by his side. And with the rich, where did Jesus, he's buried by Joseph of who? Was a rich man, the Bible says. So he died on the cross with the wicked. To, this is absolutely incredible. And now we see a prophecy of how Jesus is going to die. On a cross with two wicked people. And he would be buried among the rich in a rich man's tomb called Joseph of Arimathea. My friends, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm just overwhelmed. I, just to even preach this message this morning because of the exactness, the preciseness of the Word of God. And if you go back to the Christmas story, the timing is so significant. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. Now watch, folks. This, this is absolutely amazing. Now watch this. Some of you may not know this. I'm going to share it with you. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. I want you to see something. But when the fullness. What does that mean? Well there's going to be a time where the fullness of time has come. In other words, when the right time has come. God knows what that time is. When the fullness of time comes. When that exact time comes. When that right time comes. God sent forth his son made out of a woman. Now hold on a second. I got a problem. How does, how do, how does a child born without a man? Okay, I, got, I, got, I got a woman here. But where's the man? I don't see a man. Well, what? God sent forth his son. Made, the, Bible doesn't, the Bible never speaks of women ahead of men. The Bible. It's, it's impossible. How can a woman give birth on her own? What is the Bible saying here? That this fullness of the God sent his son and had a supernatural birth made under the law. So let's find out how incredible this is. This event was prophesied in Isaiah 7, but I want you to see Jeremiah. Watch this. Look how incredible this is. Jeremiah, stay with me, chapter 31, verse 22, I believe it is. Jeremiah, watch this now. Watch this. O long will thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter, for the Lord hath created a new thing. The Lord has created a woman shall compass. What? What does that mean? The same thing we see right here. It's the same terminology. That there will be a man will born without a man. That a woman will give birth without the intervention of a man. And we know that's impossible naturally. And Isaiah 7.14 tells us that what? That a virgin will give birth to a child. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That none others is Jesus notice the fullness of time can, can, I, can I explain this the fullness of time so Jesus was born at a particular time but all the events had to come together in order for these prophecies to be fulfilled Jesus had no control in his humanity he did as God but not in his humanity and so let's understand what what do you mean by the fullness? What do you mean that all these things had to come to pass? Well, what happened when Jesus was born? There was a what? There was a census in the land. And his parents had to go back to where? Bethlehem. It just so happened that the census took place when Mary was pregnant. Are you all with me? Jesus, of course, eventually is born. 
But there are many things that took place for the fullness of time. How did the gospel reach the world? Why was it so significant that Jesus be born at this time and that the church be born at this time? There must have been certain events that took place. And all scripture comes together. But all these events, these worldly events, had to culminate. And there were two major worldly events that took place that facilitated the gospel to be preached throughout the whole world. In other words, if Jesus would have come a hundred years before, this could have never happened. Never! What were the two world events? Any historical scholar will tell you of the Pax Romana. What is the Pax Romana? Anybody know about that? Any Italians in the house? The Pax Romana was done by the Roman government where they issued um, where men would now start building and making roads to facilitate travel throughout the Mediterranean and they called the Roman roads and Rome was very well known for building things and they build a lot of passages and, and roads and places to travel so, so you need places to travel you need some kind of facility to be able to travel to get the gospel so it can be preached throughout the world and it just so happened that in this edict that Rome made they were able to facilitate the gospel to being preached throughout the world in other words you can get to certain places easier because they build roads at this particular time and that was never the case before number one but there was a number two number two is okay I can get there and I can preach I got the roads but, but, but will they understand me they don't speak Hebrew they don't speak Aramaic how are we going to preach the gospel thank you for asking me well there was a man by the name of Alexander the Great 300 years BC, around that, 320. He conquered the world. And when Alexander the Great conquered the world, he also wanted to bring the Hellenistic or the Greek mindset and teachings to the world. And that's where we get today. A lot of our culture comes from that society. Everything we do today, eight out of ten things, stems from that mindset, that way of living, our entertainment, our government, uh, how we have how we entertain it's amazing our medicine our words it's amazing what took place during that time as far as our culture is concerned but one thing that Alexander Great did he brought the Greek language throughout the whole world and so Greek back in those days was like English is today chances are when you travel throughout the world if you know English you'll be okay is that not true? That's how it was back then in Jesus' day. If you knew Greek, you would be okay. You can travel and people can more or less understand you. Of course, not everybody, obviously, but certainly the educated world. And so, they were able to preach the gospel in different places, but using the Greek language. And a lot of people understood. And so we see the roads were made so they can travel. The language we see a census where Jesus can be born everything culminated right here in Galatians 4 in the fullness of time God sent his son everything had to be exactly at the right time the right place and as I said nothing is done by accident God arranged it God prepared it 
the prophecies, the place, every single element. The timing is so important. The fullness of time. Oh my God, I, I'm just overwhelmed. The Savior was born. Jesus. He wasn't born in Rome. No. He wasn't born in Athens or Damascus. Nowhere known. There were no trumpets, no royalty, no red carpets, no celebration, no entourage of anything. And yet, it was here in Bethlehem, the angels made the greatest declaration of all time. Here in the city of David, a Savior is born. And who were the first to hear this great message? Shepherds. The lowest, the lowest in Hebrew society. The lowest. They weren't even allowed in the temple. They were looked at as the scum of the earth. Why? Why these shepherds? Why such meagerness? Why such lowliness? Why? 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 It, it, it's all friends. Because it's the upside down kingdom of our God. It's because of who Jesus is. If God himself humbled himself and became a man and died on the cross, that message is for the humble, it's for the meek. He comes to the shepherds, the lowly, and he speaks to them and gives them the message so that all of us can come. The rich, the poor, so that all of us can come. The paupers and the princes, so all of us can come. The plumbers and the pastors. That no one takes glory in what you've done but that all the glory would be given to him there was not even any room no room for him to be born in the end no, no place for God to be born hard to imagine what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.11 that, that, that he who was rich yet for our sakes became poor Jesus died for us. God himself became a man. He emptied himself. The Greek word kenosis. He poured out himself. He took, he was divinity, divine, and he still was divinity. But, 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 but it was limited, if I can use that term, in his humanity. Yes, equally God, but equally man. And in his humanity, he was limited. And he suffered pain. And he was hungry. And he was thirsty. And he did it all for you and me to even think of God becoming a man. It's unconscionable. It's in conceivable and yet it happened and everything took place at the right time at the right place if it happened a hundred years earlier we would not be here today everything had to fit like a part in the puzzle God is the one the master chess player God is the one who organized every single thing and so now in December we remember a savior was born and we must never forget never forget how can we forget we can't forget that gift that God gave to this world oh no 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 no, no friends not, not the gift under the tree I'm not talking about a gift under the tree there's going to be lots of gifts under the tree I'm not talking about that gift I'm talking about the gift that was nailed to the tree that's the gift I'm talking about cannot forget don't forget lest I forget, can't forget what Christmas, that 
my friend is what Christmas is all about and this gift keeps on going for no power can overcome him no force can conquer him no voice can still him no darkness can hide him centuries have not eroded him time has not wearied him circumstances have not changed him no my friends no he remains still the savior the prince of peace the everlasting father the coming God the coming Messiah who is like unto God there's no one like unto him nothing was done by accident everything was ordained by the Lord oh I wish I can describe him this morning but my words pale how can you describe God how can you describe his majesty how can you describe his glory but but I know something that can I know the word of can that God can and I'm going to close this morning and I'm going to close by sharing with you who Jesus is do you want to know who Jesus is I'll tell you who Jesus is come with me as we take a little voyage as I close this morning about one that was born in Bethlehem in Genesis Jesus is the ram that was caught in the thicket in Exodus he is our Passover lamb in Numbers he's the cloud by day and the fiery pillar by night in Deuteronomy he's the city of our refuge he that dwelleth in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the in Joshua he's that red scarlet thread that comes down Rahab's window that thread of salvation in in Joshua in Joshua Jesus is the one that brings down the walls of sin Jesus is the one the victor yes 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 in Ruth he's our kinsman redeemer in Nehemiah he is the builder of everything that is broken he wants to build you up he wants to restore you in Psalms he is my shepherd I shall not want in Proverbs he is my strong tower and the righteous runneth unto it and are safe that's who he is in the song of Solomon he's the altogether lovely one there's nothing more beautiful than our Lord in Isaiah he's the suffering servant he is the stream that flows through the desert my God in Jeremiah he's the weeping prophet who weeps over Jerusalem oh Jerusalem oh Jerusalem how I've longed to embrace you but you've rejected me in Ezekiel he breathes and gives life to the dead bones that they might rise again in Daniel he's the fourth man in the furnace that's right the fourth man in the furnace when the world sees only three there's the fourth man coming to rescue me hallelujah praise the Lord in Joel he's a restorer he restores the years that the locusts have eaten he's my restorer in Amos he's my burden bearer he said come to me all that labor and a heavy laden labor in Jonah the great foreign missionary Jonah my goodness Jesus says I've come to seek and save the lost my God he came into this world Micah he's my messenger Nahum he's my avenger Habakkuk he's the watchman that is forever praying for revival are you still praying for revival are you still praying he is right yes he is yes he is in Zechariah he's the one riding on a donkey and the world is crying out Hosanna Hosanna bringing salvation to the world in Malachi he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings in Matthew he is the king of the Jews the Messiah the one who's worthy to be praised in Mark he's the miracle worker the miracle worker in Luke he's the God man the Theoanthropos the God who loves the God who's tender the God who's merciful the God man yes in John in John he's the way the truth and the life he is the door that opens he is the gate he is the bread he is the light he is the water he is my 
my peace. He brings life. I've come to give you life. Are you ready for this? And to give you life more abundantly. You could stop at abundant, but he says more. And for you prosperity teachers, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about spiritual joy and fulfillment. That's what I'm talking about. For peace I leave unto you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth unto you. You know why that's the most expensive? Because there are millionaires who spend millions of dollars in bottles trying to find peace, but they can't find it. Who's Jesus? Who's Jesus, you ask? In Acts, there's no name under heaven given among men whereby men can be saved. In Romans, he's the one who justifies me by faith. In Galatians, he redeems me from the curse of the law. In Philippians, he is the God who supplies all my needs. In Colossians, he's the fullness of the Godhead. In Thessalonians, he's our soon coming king. Soon and very soon, we're going to see him. In Timothy, he's my mediator. In Titus, he's my blessed hope. Do you have hope this morning? Do you have hope? He's my blessed hope. You can live 40 days without food, three days without water, but only seconds without hope. He is my hope. In Hebrews, he's a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. In James, he is the Lord who heals the sick. Is there anybody sick? this morning he's my healer in Peter he's my chief shepherd in Jude oh friends get ready in Jude he's the Lord coming with 10,000 of angels and friends in Revelation can we stand gotta stand gotta stand this morning in Revelation you gotta stand in Revelation Revelation 1-7 he's one coming in the clouds in Revelation 19 he, he, he's the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation he is the bridegroom coming for his bride friends are you ready to receive him listen Jesus said when you see See these signs. When you see these signs, lift up your head. Lift up your head for redemption draweth nigh. Friends, he's coming very, very soon. Redemption is drawing nigh. All these signs have been fulfilled. There's nothing left in Bible prophecy. He could come tonight. He could come tomorrow. I tell you, friends, keep your eyes on the Lord because he's coming soon for he is the Messiah and he's coming back for his bride. And one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Krishna, but King Jesus. Because, because Buddha will bow, Krishna will bow, Muhammad will bow. You will bow and I will bow to the one who died for your sins. Oh, let us adore him tonight. Let us adore him.